Welcome to Humans of Fintech, the podcast where I share the inspiring stories of diverse leaders bringing equity to financial systems through fintech. I'm Nicole Casperson. In this episode, I sit down with Liza Landsman, CEO of Stash, who recently stepped into this role. Liza has a long history in the financial services industry and found the perfect fit as a CEO in fintech. In this episode, Liza brings the heat, so you do not want to miss it. We are talking why she entered the fintech space and what drew her in, why consumer fintech is alive and well, so please stop telling me it's dead. And she gets candid about the fintech ecosystem and the need for fresh perspectives to step in, step up, and change the status quo. I am so excited to introduce you all to the brand new CEO of Stash, one of the leading consumer fintech companies out there. Enjoy getting to know Liza Landsman. Thank you, Liza, so much for joining me on Humans of Fintech in the Williamsburg studio. Thanks for coming out. Hey, it's great. This is the closest I've been to Peter Luger in 20 years. (laughs) Absolutely incredible. Said like a true New Yorker, which is this is where you are from. I'm actually from Philly, Oh, okay. but I've lived in New York for so long that even my husband, who is a native New Yorker, will now allow that I am a New Yorker. For a long time, he just said I was from a small, quaint town in the South, which is how he describes Philadelphia. <laughs> well, kudos to hubby there. Um, always, always uplifting. But anyways, fintech. So, Liza, you have been in your role as Stash CEO for a couple months now, right? Just about. Okay, well, before we dive into that... I want to talk about your background first. So you have a long-standing career in financial services from... Such a polite way of saying I've been working since the dawn of time. Correct. (laughs) Thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) And truthfully, I admire so much, especially leading women who are in this space for that long. That is no small feat. So I congratulate you. What... Was it about your experiences at some formal traditional financial institutions like City, BlackRock, that type of those yeah. type of places that led you into the fintech space? So I think it's a couple of things. I worked at City at a really interesting period. I was there from 2000 to 2010. So so happy times. I mean, there were some happy times in the middle, <laughs> but the beginning and the end were punctuated with some pretty significant, obvious economic disruptions. I joke with my team at Stash that it's suddenly cool to be middle-aged because we've lived through multiple cycles of disruption and you sort of eventually get to the point where you're kind of like, hey, it's actually like it's going to suck for a while, but it will actually be okay. And here are the ways we can get through these things. But I would say, you know, I spent a decade at City, which was about eight years longer than I thought I would when mm. I started there. Chunk of years at E-Trade, at BlackRock, also earlier in my career at IBM. I had a 15-year hiatus between venture-backed startups, one in the payment space, and then later as part of the founding executive team at Jet. And I would say there are a number of things I took away from my time, and I'm going to say more traditional financial services and consumer finance that led me to Stash. I'd say most principally the observation that structurally those businesses are set up to serve and serve extremely well the mass affluent mm. population of the country. But for the 88% of U.S. households that don't meet that criteria, there's just much less available to them 
And it never made sense to me that the overwhelming majority of Americans should be so dramatically underserved by the largest financial institutions out there. I would also say, though, that a lot of the lessons learned in other places that I spend time, not those traditional either money center Mm -hmm. banks or large asset aggregators, also is part of what led me to Stash, which is one kind of this sense that technology could really be used as a disruptive force. I would say all of the large organizations I talked about would tell you they use technology as a disruptive force. And I would argue it was probably more of a enabler of maintenance of the status quo. Mm -hmm. And I really did think, I still, maybe this is idealistic, think technology actually can be used as a force for good in our society. And it's that intersection and seeing what sort of small, scrappy tech companies in other categories could do that got me excited about the marriage of technology and financial services as really an enabler of access. And, you know, Stash to me was kind of the the culmination of all of these things that I had worked on previously, rather than like a rinse and repeat of things I had done before. Right. A fresh kind of step in the right direction. Yeah. Almost. I would say not almost, for sure. For sure. I think a lot about, as many people in the workforce do, and, you know, folks at Stash will laugh because I use these models all the time. And it's good that I'm not just on podcasts because in the video you can see the funny hand gesture <laughs> I'm about to make, which is I always talk about, like, the twin angels on our shoulders, your uh. better angel and your capitalist angel. And... The thing that was really exciting to me about Stash is that, like, both of them are very happy with Stash as a choice for how Mm -hmm. to spend my time because I think it actually sort of serves both masters quite well. Yeah. And I would love to, you know, dive into that, actually, because I think oftentimes because of my optimism for the fintech space and technology's ability to create that financial inclusion that we want to see and that economic equity that we want to see in the world, you know, I'm... Yeah, I'm called like noble or just far too optimistic and as if this reality, right, as if both the devil on the shoulder or the devil and the angel on your shoulders couldn't, you know, coexist, I guess, or be both be served and happy. You know, how do you navigate some of that doubt that is so out there in the industry then? I mean, like, I think I can only say this from my vantage point, which is doubt is for other people. I don't think when you are part of a leadership team of a startup, you really should have space for doubt. You should have space for intellectual curiosity. Mm -hmm. You should have space for questioning. But if you don't have complete conviction about the validity of the mission of the business you're on, you should probably be doing something else with your time. I inherently believe that investing writ large is in some ways like the most optimistic thing you could do Because you're basically saying, like, I want to, like, I believe in a future that is going to be better than where we are now. Like, I can't think of anything that's more actually inherently optimistic than that. And it's sort of an act of, I don't know, trying to do something really positive for your future self. Like, Mm -hmm. what is more hopeful than that? Right. And so, you know, what I don't believe, though, is that hope is a substitute for planning. And that's why I actually think, like the great sort of juicy center of our product offering is that it gives people a plan and a set of actions to do that lead them toward that better future 
as opposed to just hoping for it to become true. Mm. I mean, such a powerful statement. You know, hope isn't a replacement for planning. I think that's yes, something I have said to my children also. <laughs> um, well, the fintech children yeah. listen to this podcast yes, need to enough. hear it because I think there's just so much doom and gloom right now, especially around consumer fintech. Yeah. And something that bothers me a lot is I can't see another headline that says consumer fintech is dead because I don't understand how we're supposed to believe that consumer fintech is dead when there's still billions of people out there that don't have access. I mean, like, I think it's really important to separate people's pessimism about things like where the capital markets are today. Mm -hmm. Like the capital markets today and, you know, given what I said since I've worked for the last 6,000 years, (laughs) like you can certainly see like there's turmoil and volatility in the capital markets and coming off of essentially like a totally gorgeous bull market with insanely low interest rates and almost unlimited access to capital where, you know, access to capital is now where interest rates are now, where market stability is now. Like, it causes people to be generally concerned and pessimistic. And when you look at what that means, not just for fintech, but across lots of sectors, what people thought companies were worth before Mm -hmm. versus what they think companies are worth now, like, I completely understand if a lot of your own capital or your fund's capital is deployed in that, like, there's real reason for concern. But that to me is a distinct and separate question from can technology, like, disrupt traditional consumer finance? Mm -hmm. Can the sort of lower cost basis it has promised actually deliver on creating access for lots and lots of people at lower costs? And I think the answer to that second question is unequivocally yes. Mm -hmm. Will companies be worth in that category, be valued the same from a capital markets perspective this year as they were last year? I think we all know the answer to that question. And when will they get back to that point? But that's different than whether like the fundamental premise and like theory of the case holds true. I think the theory of the case holds true. You just have to actually be patient capital to say like, hey, do I believe consumers are going to want to continue to engage in this category? I mean, do consumers want to buy and sell stuff and have money for later in their lives? I think the answer is unequivocally yes. And will always so, be yes. <laughs> and will always be yes. So check. Yeah. Are we on a like continued more march toward more and more technology enabling all aspects of consumer life? I think the answer is unequivocally yes and will always be yes. And so your question you're really asking yourself is how long will it take for the intersection of those things to become ubiquitous? Mm-hmm. That's a subjective question. Mm-hmm. I don't, you know, I'm post-2016. I am well out of the prediction business of almost <laughs> everything. But, Fair. But on, you know, those sort of categorical truths, I still have very high conviction. Right. Well, I mean, and it just takes, you know, and what I love about you know, Stash having this trajectory with a new CEO and just that fresh perspective and that level of optimism is, you know, stepping in and given the current environment, we have to realize that we need different metrics of success to get to these pathways to profitability that, you know, everyone is, is speaking of. Yeah. I'm, you know, I'm coming off the heels of a big fintech conference last week in, in Vegas. And you know, I can't even tell you how many panels I had to sit on where VCs were like, 
talking to an audience of founders being like, please stop caring about the valuations. This number doesn't really mean anything. (laughs) I want to know how you're like sustainably creating a business. And I'm like, it's very interesting. One of the things that I shared when I went around and met the sort of broad team Mm -hmm. at Stash on this regional roadshow I went on my first couple of weeks, and I came to Stash having taken a hiatus from operating and having spent five years inside a really large venture capital fund that's peopled with lots of wonderful and smart human beings. And I was like, look, smart investors have always cared about profitability. The difference is now all investors care about profitability. And I think that is unequivocally true because I've had, I think, the benefit and the opportunity, at least within the venture system of sitting on both sides of the table, that Mm -hmm. is both like leading companies and investing in companies. I've always had the attitude that like evaluation is other people's yardstick. Mm -hmm. What really matters are kind of first principle fundamentals, Mm -hmm. right? And that starts from a really basic question, certainly a question I ask myself every time I think about taking a new role, but a question I also ask myself as an investor, which is going to seem really simplistic, but it's just, is this a thing or a business or service that should exist in the world? Mm -hmm. And that seems like kind of a dumb, obvious question, but you would be amazed how many companies, when you ask yourself that question, your inner monologue really goes something like, hmm, I'm not really sure what problem this is solving. Right. It's like, is the world going to be a better place because this thing exists or could it continue on or become better without it type of thing. Well, I think that also means that, you know, as a fintech leader or even just whatever role you have in this industry, you do have to, you know, actually reflect and determine your own values, right? A hundred percent. Yeah. Like, I think that's just the way to move through the world, world. regardless of what (laughs) sector you work in. I say this on stages and lies. I'm telling you, people look at me like I'm crazy. Well, they obviously had different mothers than I. <laughs> Same, and I probably yours. Apparently so. And I think, you know, even I get asked often, like, what in me is so, you know, a kind of attached and, and hungry to see, you know, fintech actually provide on that good yeah. element. And I'm like, because that's how we all win, right? It's true. I mean, like, I started my career in a very different sector. First, I mean, earlier in my career, I actually worked in, I worked at a literary agency, Mm -hmm. publishing, and sort of got the digital bug. And then I worked in deep tech and went to a startup in the payment space and then from there to City. And what I really thought, and I had a lot of friends from college who worked in finance, and I would go to parties with them when I first graduated from college. And I'd be like, Jesus, this is the most boring thing on the planet. (laughs) Like, how does anyone spend their time on this? I have no idea. <laughs> this is true. And when I went to work at City, I thought, oh, this is like a good gig to have when my kids are young. It'll be very manageable. And then I'll like go back to a real job in a real tech organization because that's what I'm really interested in. Mm-hmm. And it is there that I really kind of discovered behavioral economics. It was sort mm-hmm. of early days of that science. And because I think, you know, in another life, maybe I would have been an anthropologist, I started really getting compelled and interested in the fact that how people, like, save, spend, and invest money in some ways is the purest expression of their values. Yeah. Right? I used Mm -hmm. to joke, like, I can look at your portfolio and tell you about your relationship with your parents, which 
It's a fun party trick, but untrue. (laughs) Um, But it really got me sort of on the path. I mean, part of the reason I stayed in the industry and became so compelled by this is that, like, it's not just like an interesting question. It is the central question. Yeah. You think about like, what is the greatest source of anxiety? Other than if you have a health issue, it is like concerns about money. Like, what do families fight about? They fight about about divorce. Yeah. Yeah. And it is not because money is the thing into a, in itself, but because it is the unlocker to access to education, stability, high quality health care experiences. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, to me, that is what made me from someone who is kind of, I would say, like a drive by dilettante in the category to someone who is utterly compelled by it. Right. Well, it's. Something that could really help with the scarcity mindset of our entire world, right? Everyone thinking, well, I have to put myself first. There's just not enough resources in the world for everyone. And I think that technology proves that there are. In fact, now we're at a place where people would say consumer fintech is oversaturated at this point. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I've heard that argument I guess when all consumers who could benefit from access and the creation of economic security have achieved that, then maybe I would agree with that argument. But that feels far from where we are now. Thank you. Yes. I'm also of the belief that, you know, negativity breeds clicks. (laughs) And that is like all I can attribute some of that to. You'll get no argument from me on that. Right, right. Always, It's always easier to be cynical than it is to be aspirational. Yeah, look, I do think that's really true. Mm -hmm. And, you know, well, it's much less risky. Yeah. And so I think we talk about this a lot internally, that they're like one of the greatest things that is an obstacle for us to overcome to like get people engaged either in our platform or any other platform that could be helpful to them is, you know, kind of this, like the overcoming the inertia to get started. And part of that is fear of the dark. Mm. Right. And so there's this thing years ago when I worked at a large asset manager, they were launching a defined contribution program and there was a calculator they wanted to launch that was going to show Like the earlier you started and I was like, hey, I mean, here's the thing. Those things are useful. But also the reason that people don't save for retirement early in their lives is not because they like fail to grasp the intellectual concept Mm -hmm. that the sooner you start saving, the more money you save. It's that often they don't have the money. They don't know if they're going to, I'll put this in quotes, do it right. Mm -hmm. No one wants to feel stupid. So true. And there's this thing also, I would say, like, in the back of our brains, like in our lizard brains, that's a little bit like, hmm, I'm probably not going to have enough money. And it will be really upsetting to me if I discover the truth of that now. So I'm just not going to think about it. Well, I mean, it's everything in our society and world was pretty much built to distract us, right? So that we just you know, compartmentalize things and and move on and then do the next thing, right? And especially with money. I mean, I think that it's definitely a balance to be able to, like, you know, get users to come in and be like, just come out of the dark, right? You're like that moving on beyond just like, you know, sign up for this app. 
I mean, kind of thing. The you know, as always, we stand on the shoulder of giants. So I think about the work that Brandon and Ed, the founders of Stash, mm-hmm. did, which has like built such an amazing foundation for us. But also the insights they had at the beginning, the mental model they had for the business, they use Weight Watchers as the model, right? When you think about when you like want to become more healthy, when you people will start with like a weight loss target Mm. and the idea of like, well, how do I lose 30 pounds? Like that's just so much. It's insurmountable. And what Weight Watchers, you know, does and did is break that down and say like, all right, you just want to start on a journey of like eating a little bit more healthily and just try and lose one pound. And that's sort of how they had this idea of like, you know, if you have $5, you can be an investor. Mm -hmm. And so it's not this big daunting thing. It's similar, I think, to like the insight that Nike had all those years ago, like unleashing our inner athlete. Like, Mm. you know, I'm never going to be Jim Fix, but like (laughs) I can jog around my neighborhood and like for a little bit each day and then go a little bit longer and a little bit longer. And that's kind of the approach that they took when they founded Stash. And I think it's still true, which is when you think about like, oh, my God, either retirement is so far off or like, I don't know how to navigate the complex markets. That seems like big and scary. But when you break those down into small, takeable steps, it suddenly makes the unapproachable approachable and it makes the scary, like less scary and more accessible. And I think that's kind of our mission. I think there are other people who kind of have that same insight. I, I like the way we do it, but yeah. <laughs> I, I like I sort of feel like everyone welcome in the resistance. Yeah. I mean, is there any kind of, you know, adjustments this year that have to be made to help kind of get your users there as well, kind of to this mindset, to this, you know, if you've got a dollar, you have plenty to share. Yeah. No, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, look, there are a couple of things. One, we're constantly on our smart portfolio rebalancing Mm -hmm. what's in there in light of market conditions. Two, although Sarah always reminds me, I am not allowed to provide investment advice. It is one of the things that Stash does do for our consumers. And, you know, as interest rates have risen, like the things that we're telling our consumers on the platform, like the best places to put their money have shifted accordingly. But the truth is the constant drumbeat that we are sharing with the folks on our platform is blessedly the same all the time because the truth is for 99% of the people on the planet, the best thing you can do is invest small, consistent amount of money over time. Mm -hmm. And so I was kind of like, you know, we don't do today like big television commercials, but if we were going to do one, I would show like a series of different like moments in the market that have created massive volatility. And like our advice is mostly always going to be the same, which is invest a small amount consistently in a highly diversified portfolio. When you look at the performance for people who do that Mm -hmm. on our platform and elsewhere, like it's very good Mm -hmm. because that's actually the way to build long term economic health and sustainability. Think about it as having like long-term diet filled with protein and vegetables as opposed to eating ice cream for breakfast. Like, right. It's fun that first day, but it really sucks a lot. <laughs> right, exactly. And we're going to get you your uh, directorial debut for a future stash commercial. Because <laughs> we've got the idea going already, <laughs> you know? We'll get you on the Super Bowl one day, oh, something like that. <laughs> you know, I have had the opportunity to oversee many, many ad campaigns 
in my long career. And every person who's ever worked with me would tell you one thing. Do not let me write copy. Oh. <laughs> like I wanted it. Well, despite the publishing moments. You know what? I'm a little too direct. Oh. So like I want perfect for podcast to do. Yeah. A slogan <laughs> for someplace that like we're just as good as everybody else, but we're not schmucks. And it's like. <laughs> I feel like that's accurate and people would actually appreciate the refreshing honesty, but was shot down some reason by like my partners internally for that one. Well, I do think that the fintech industry and, you know, excited to see you on some stages to excited to see you at events and speaking and all that good stuff, because I do think the industry can use a little bit more directness and fresh perspective as well. Uh, kind so, of you to say. Lots yeah. of smart people working. Oh, this there is. And they've been on the podcast, you know, and it's awesome to see so many just different perspectives and not have the echo chamber. I want to kind of talk about just being a woman in this space. Sure. We kind of talk about that a lot on this show. You know, any kind of pieces of advice, big lesson along the way that you've learned as just, like I said, I really admire women that have been in this space for, you know, longer than yeah. a decade. I mean, look, I would say this. It's not as good as it could be, but it is better than it was, far better than it was, right. both in terms of representation and just openness. You know, I think every woman, every person of color, every diverse candidate that is in a leadership role, I think, one, like, has an opportunity and an obligation to, like, reach behind or reach down and help mm -hmm. lift up others. I know that's sort of cliche, but I genuinely believe it is true. Two, I also think just from a, you know, I really believe in like, if you can see it, you can be it. And it's just helpful for people to have representation in rooms they're not yet in. And so mm -hmm. that I think gives me hope and gives me more hope even for the future. I do think, you know, not unique to fintech, not unique to financial services, not unique to tech. I mean, there's not a single industry I have worked in where women have been equally represented mm -hmm. in leadership leadership and it is slow painstaking progress but each person is like just as a snowball like gather steam as it rolls like that flywheel is starting and yeah so i'm excited about that it's interesting i met jody Cantor, the reporter at a dinner in new york about a decade ago oh wow and this is before a lot of our stars and we just like chatted we were like two working moms sitting next to each other at a dinner we sort of stayed in touch and it was when those stories first came out I sent her a note I'd been working in banking for a long time and I was just like thank you like mm -hmm. you're sort of giving voice to stories that lots of women needed to share and wanted to share and it's yeah. really important what you're doing and last night my daughter who is a senior in college texted me and she was like oh have you ever heard of this reporter Jody Cantor she's coming <laughs> to my college to like uh, speak and I'm attending this dinner and like it's very exciting and so I emailed her and I was like this is really a full circle moment that like my daughter is now telling me about yeah. the importance of your work and I feel like I'm excited for her to graduate into a world where like women can more fully participate in the workforce mm -hmm. and hopefully with fewer obstacles than those of us who came before may have right. encountered on our journeys. Right. I mean, what a full circle moment and what a, you know, just a testament to what when we all worked, you know, together and when we do create that, you know, network effect around each other. 
and what it can do, right? You connecting with a journalist that can tell the story that can that is now being told to high school students is huge. I think for me, it's it has been a narrative that needs to be rewritten. Uh, one that, you know, women are winning. <laughs> women are here and they are, you know, they are building companies and they're investing and they're CEOs. And, you know, I, I'm definitely optimistic about that, you know, 6% of CEOs in fintech are women stat. You are now one of them. Yes. <laughs> you know, I got to stay healthy or it'll go down to five points. You got to keep you going. However many Diet Cokes it takes. <laughs> All right. I might be <laughs> counterproductive, but I'm with you. <laughs> We're going to keep it going. But I think something that resonated with me recently was I was listening to a podcast that Gloria Steinem was on. And, you know, she's. I'm channeling her in my gray streaks. I, it's, I love it. It's a power move. And she, you know, someone asked her, how does she stay optimistic? throughout all these years and kind of more on this element of it than just fintech particularly. But, and she said, because I'm not alone. Like if I have to have done this in a silo, I probably wouldn't be so happy right now. Like I probably wouldn't be laughing. Does that resonate with you? Oh, completely. I mean, like, I think there's both kind of this interesting sense of like the continuing chain, right? Just as I said, it was like a full circle moment, you know, having that conversation with my daughter, like, my mom, who sadly we lost five years ago next month, but who I was super close with, like from the time I was six, used to make my brother and me like go out canvassing with her. Like I started canvassing door to door. Wow. And yeah, I will tell you at six, it was not by choice. <laughs> but over time, you kind of like realize, oh, this is actually what participatory democracy means. Mm-hmm. And it's like... I'm not saying that thing in and of itself is great, although I really strongly suggest everybody do it at least once because you will not appreciate how important and how fragile democracy is until you knock on the doors of your neighbors and encourage them to go vote. But it's really this notion that active participation and creating the change you want is the only choice available to humans who actually care about the outcomes. Yep. Right. And that is like what you choose to do for your work. It's what you choose to do in your leisure time. It's what you choose to read about, talk about. And I'm not saying we all need to lead lives of pure virtue and work. But we could. I mean, we we, <laughs> we could do more of it. Yeah. I mean, look, I, you know, no. I love a good, you know, historical mystery like the next person. But also, you know, I just think... I have little patience for people who snipe from the cheap seats. You know, you said before, like, cynicism is easy, and I agree. Like, optimism actually takes more work and energy, but I think it's so worth it Mm -hmm. because how can you ever actually, like, create the version of the world you want if you don't take active steps to bring it about? Right. So I have all the time and all the patience in the world for people who are actively working toward the change they want. And the critics from the sidelines right, like hold less interest for me. Mm, mm-hmm, right. And just having those critics not disturb the peace. And I think being able to, it is really what you do every day. Sometimes I feel like I engage with you know, women in you know, my fintech community who think, okay, well, you know, they'll be that big change when they reach a certain level or they have to have a certain amount of money or a certain this or that when what you said is, more of the reality. It's the, you know, conversation that you engage in daily. It's the person you speak to. It's the, you know, other 
woman that you bring into this space because you're like, hey, fintech's kind of dope and bring her in and that type of thing. You know, you don't have to have these great accomplishments to do you know, good work every day to make our industry better I think, and our world better. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, like, I also recognize, like, I sit in a position of real privilege. Mm-hmm. Like, I am a white woman. I, like, got to go to college, although I was the first woman in my family to go to college, which was, like, a big accomplishment yeah. in my family. But also, you know, as I got more senior, I took a lot more license to, you know, be more active, at least more visibly active. Mm-hmm. I think you're right, though. At any stage of your journey, you can be working to make things better where you are or for other people or just by the dialogue you provoke. But I do think there is an obligation for people who have more seniority and therefore kind of have more latitude to help bear that torch in a different way. Love it. It's so true. And kind of leads me into my closing question for you, Uh, Okay, (laughs) which is if we want to be the change that we wish to see, what is the change you wish to see in fintech and how do you embody it? I mean, the good news is that I'm actually working on the thing that I most care about, which is huge, like equal access to like economic sustainability for all Americans. I mean, and I'm saying Americans, but that's a proxy for like... Over time, you know, this should be true everywhere, but we're starting at home on this one. I think economic insecurity is like probably the greatest challenge facing this country right now. Obviously, there are massive considerations around the environment, but economic viability is the key to like escaping poverty, mm-hmm. better education, better health care, you name it. And I think that security and independence and the freedom that it allows families is the unlock for all the things that, like, regardless of where you sit on any side of any aisle, like, we all say are the things we want as part of, like, the, you know, fruition of the American experiment. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how we can divorce those things in our minds because, like, those literally are the keys to the kingdom. Mm-hmm. And so what we want is for those things not to be hidden behind obfuscatory language, high fees, mm-hmm. complex systems, which historically has been what most middle and low income Americans have faced when they've tried to get these services from traditional providers. I mean, we're really at a tipping point at this stage with fintech where we can really kind of cross over into getting more of that you know, middle America trust, that buy-in. You know, today, there's still, obviously, the big banks are still where most people do their, you know, financial transactions. But I do think that it takes you know, fresh leaders like yourself. It takes these fresh perspectives and insights to help us get there. And so I look forward to seeing... Don't just say amen to that. Amen. And then church ended. <laughs> and we rise. Anyways, but Liza, thank you. So much. Just congratulations again on the new role as CEO of Stash. It is a big deal. And thank you for your representation for everything you said on this show. Absolutely incredible. I you may be a church of Liza. We could we could start it. <laughs> well, I'm Jewish, so that well, might be uh, temple. <laughs> I'm like, what the other thing? Temples. Whatever it is, whatever you want. I will I'll I will go and I will I will listen to the Hey, we serve great food. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I will will listen to whatever you say. Um, 
Thank you again for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. To hear our next story from another diverse leader, be sure to tune in next week. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to our show and give it a five-star rating as it helps our message reach more people who want to find belonging too.